Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 40, which begins with Thor's friends debating if Loki could be a traitor and ends with Loki confronting his father about what Loki has figured out. Joining us on the show today for the last day of the week is Jessica Plummer. Jess, um, this has been great having you on. Have you done any of the um, movie by minute things before this? I have not. And this is fascinating to me. I had always wondered, like, how how do you find that much to talk about in a minute? <laughs> and we keep going, oh, I guess we need to stop talking. There's so much to it. So now I know. Yeah, that's the that was exactly my reaction the first time Andy asked me to come on to the Iron Iron Man show. So, well, I promise you we're going to have a lot. We're not going to have any trouble finding something to talk about in this minute. We'll get right to that in just a moment. We are an independent podcast from True Story FM. We love producing this show and talking about Thor and everything that goes along with it. It does take time and cost money, though. Without our members, for whom we are eternally grateful, we couldn't keep it going. Membership means that we can keep delivering content to you without selling your information and interests through podcast advertising sources. We like our privacy, and we know you do as well. If you're already a member, thank you. If you're not, would you please consider becoming one for the season? It only costs $5 a month, or we offer a discounted price if you join at the annual rate. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to shows, access to live streams, stickers, all sorts of stuff. Plus, you get the comfort of knowing that you are supporting this independent podcast production. Visit truestory.fm slash Marvel Movie Minute to learn more. Thanks. So we're kind of continuing the reactions here, and we have Volstagg just continues looking troubled and confused. Like, you just feel like he's the person who's like, why are, why are mommy and daddy fighting, you know? <laughs> and and Fandral is, he seems to really understand the line we were talking about before, where, you know, he says, there's a difference between mischief and treason. And I don't know you all, but to me, what I have in my notes here is that this scene is what we needed from the Warriors 3, you know? And then I feel like, Andy and I have talked a lot about the slapstick that was cut. I feel like this scene especially is why it's so important that that was cut. Not just that it would be annoying, but I don't think this scene would land anywhere near the same way if we'd had, you know, Volstagg knocking things over with his fat belly and the other kind of slapstick stuff that happens a lot with his characters in the comics. I Yeah, I'm really glad that we thinned that out. And this, I, I do wish that, like, they kept these characters in these films. Like, uh, it's very frustrating because I feel like they chose to diminish the characters in this particular film because in as they were scripted, it was like the comedic relief and it was very annoying. And Brana very smartly said, let's thin that out because it's just too much. And we got less of them, which is great for the context of this film. But unfortunately, it doesn't give us a lot of meat for these characters. And as you see, by the time we get to Ragnarok, they're just as disposable as everybody else. And it's very disappointing because I really think there could have been something interesting done uh, with Volstagg, uh, Fandral, and Hogan the Grimm. But um, yeah, and this is this is a moment for these guys. And I wish that there were more moments that we had with them. 
Yeah. What really strikes me um, with the Warriors three is um, so Jack Kirby um, was he, he loved having a stock set of characters and reusing them. Um, so you see this uh, with um, he created um, the challenges of the unknown at DC, and then he lifted those characters and he brought them over to Marvel and he created the fantastic four and they are, you know, the, the fantastic four have a girl, but they're otherwise basically identical. And you see those same characters, uh, basic character types again in his even earlier 1940s work for DC with the newsboy Legion and with the warriors three, they also have DC characters who are pretty much functionally identical to them. Um, uh, in the Kamandi comics, who is the he's the last boy on earth, and he's like basically a cave boy in the future, and everybody else is a furry, like they're all talking animals. <laughs> and the characters there, his like furry friends, there's there are identical to the Warriors Three. There is a bear who is Volstag, because of course Volstag would be a bear. Of course, and there is a uh, a wolf who is uh, Fandral, and there is a um a bull who is Hogan and like you're like okay yeah those are the animals that they would turn into if they turned into animals but they are really very instantly understandable but very flat characters and yeah I can like you see that the sort of struggle there the push and pull of are we going to go for this broad archetype are we going to go for a character who feels like they really inhabit this world and can deal with more complex ideas and I think this is where trying to straddle that line kind of falls apart a little bit. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, did Josh Dallas decide not to continue as Fandral because his comedy bits all got cut out and he really wanted more of that or because he knew he could tell, like from the way that the character is being treated, it was like, they're not ever going to give me more. They're just not. And so it's, I'd rather take this TV show. Like, I, I just feel like that was probably his line of thinking when he opted to not be in Thor the Dark World. Which is interesting that, like, Zachary, Zachary Levi takes over and sort of... <laughs> does even less? <laughs> it, it does even less, but hey, he stayed in the superhero movie business. He got there eventually. He did. Yeah, he was getting ready for Kazam, so, you know... <laughs> or Shazam. Shazam, thank you. Oh, God, I just fell into the, the <laughs> that, that plot. You're right. Berenstein or Bernstein. Exactly. Um, anyway. Kazam is a movie. Yeah, that's true. Shaq. It, and I think it's also an other interesting note of where we are in the MCU's timeline, because I can't imagine an actor today dropping out of a secondary role. Because, you know, you look at, like, a character like Wong, who has now popped up in a couple of different places, and, like... If you're a secondary character in Marvel, A, don't worry. People who love your character and are going to go crazy over your character when they're on screen for two minutes. But also Marvel will probably make a movie or a show about you if you just hold on <laughs> a little while. So yeah, well, right, my yeah. question is, can they drop out? Because they often don't know what they're filming. So do their contracts even allow for that? Because they'll just get pulled in. Like, didn't Gwyneth Paltrow say she didn't know she was in Spider-Man? Like, they get pulled into random things so i'm not sure that their contracts actually tell them like it seems i don't know how it's possible but it might just be like we get your soul for the next decade well right that there's something to that but i mean even now like like 
I think Kevin Feige has said, we're no longer doing these long contracts. Because like Samuel L. Jackson had a nine-picture deal when he signed on for it, so I mean, which was unheard of at the time. Like nobody ever had something like that. And and a lot of these other people, uh, a lot of the Chris's ended up like do, signing six-picture deals and, and very long contracts to be in these films. And now Feige came out and said, you know, we're not doing that anymore. You know, it, these pe- people now know what we're doing and they want to continue. And I think that that's probably very much exactly where we are right now where we're just not going to see people bailing anymore and if anything um we're probably not either going to see where they recast somebody like terrence howard like i think they have now worked things out enough where and and they have enough power where they're just going to say you know this is the deal and this is how we're going to operate and so we want you to return you know at the time they're making this i think they're at this point really starting to hope that the mcu is going to be a thing they're trying to develop it I don't think Chris Hemsworth is signing a four-picture deal at this point. You know, why would you pay him when you have no idea if, you know, that's going to happen? I think that was – I think it's after, at the Avengers movie or maybe after that they started you know, really locking in those major picture deals. But I, I may be wrong there. But that's yeah, I, I, I think it, it might have been – well, I don't know. I, it was one of the Chris's, though. It might not be this Chris. It might be Evans. It was Evans. Yeah. He – so, um, like you said, Samuel L. Jackson had the nine-picture deal, and they offered – Evans a nine picture deal and he was like uh-uh that's too many pictures and they he got it down to six yeah so mm-hmm. that makes me wonder if they also offered Hemsworth a nine picture deal or if they offered him less because he was less of a known quantity than Evans at the time who was American who had done the Fantastic Four movies and like had a little bit of recognition in the state varsity blues <laughs> that was um James Vanderbeek Chris Evans was in not another teen movie which parodied that scene Oh, okay. That I I've seen his body with the strategically oh. placed whipped oh, cream yes. many a time, um, <laughs> and that is a uh, a meme that has gone around the internet quite a lot. His proudest uh, but... work, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, what, just going back to the scene, what's interesting is like there was actually more scripted here that they chose to not I, they didn't include. I'm, it wasn't a deleted scene. I'm sure they filmed it. But basically, after Fandral talks, then Sif says, who else could elude Heimdall's gaze with tricks of light and shadow, which actually is an interesting point. And then Volstagg says the ceremony was interrupted just before Thor was named king. Sif said we should go to the Allfather. And then Fandral, again, being kind of this, uh, the the negative character, and tell him what? Oh, by the way, we think your son just betrayed the throne? And do us a favor, bring back Thor. There's a good fellow. And then Sif <laughs> ends the conversation with, it's our duty. If any of our suspicions are right, then all of Asgard is in danger. So, again... I like that we're getting this much meat with these characters. I would have been fine if we had all this in here. Again, it kind of speaks to this sense of should should they be this suspicious at this particular point in time? And I guess that's probably why they ended up cutting it. I mean, I think it's another great example of it doesn't feel like it's missing when you watch the movie at its normal pace. Um, But when you bring this like really specific analysis to bear, it does feel like the scene cuts off really abruptly and there should be some sort of end cap on that conversation. Right, right. Yeah. Well, especially because I think one of the hardest things to pull off, and I've seen a few pieces of media do this, but it's difficult, is where you're trying to tell us that some characters are being overly suspicious and like a little paranoid, maybe, or or that they are not willing to accept something about the person they care about. So they're jumping to other ideas, but that they're also right at the same time. And I feel like for me, when a character like Sif is just 
unwilling to look at the fact that Thor is not going to be a capable king, as Loki's pointing out. Like that scene should be about kind of a flaw with Sif that that she doesn't she can't see that because of her relationship with Thor and that that's an important character beat for her. But again, kind of just the way you said it, like the way it's so quickly going, but also because we don't get sort of resolution of some of these things. I don't know if we're supposed to think that no, actually Thor is wrong. Loki is wrong. Thor is just fine, and like they're they're the good ones because they see the potential in Thor, which just. Feels like a very weird reading of what we've seen for the last 30, 38 minutes, 39 minutes. I mean, I think, you know, the movie sort of awkwardly straddles hereditary monarchy and fairy tales and mythology and all those things say that, yes, Thor should be king. It is, it is his birthright to be king. It's also very Shakespearean, which, I mean, we have Kenneth Branagh behind the wheel, so of course it is. But when the rightful king is not on the throne in Shakespeare, literally nature freaks out so like the the undergirding of everything that powers this movie and their culture is saying yes thor should be king that is like the the right answer here which we know is like as viewers we feel it the answer is not get rid of thor and loki is king because loki is smarter the answer is that thor needs to grow as a person um so even though everything that loki is saying is completely logical and Sif is being willfully obtuse about Thor's fault. They all are. Our sympathy is still with them because all of the blueprints for all of our stories say that Thor should be king. The idea of the, the person who should become the one who inherits everything, whether it's the kingdom or daddy's company or, you know, whatever it is. But he's surrounded by yes men who will never challenge him. And he has to spend some time away from that, like, chorus of adoration you know so not just from the friends but also like from his mother who's just like oh thor you little scamp you can never do wrong in my eyes um like that's a very common trope that you see a lot and so yeah i think that's another way of of helping frame this is that they are you get the mistakes they're making but also that they see a potential in thor you know but that he has to also he they will never challenge him in the way that loki will and so he has to spend some time away from them which is what the movie winds up being about yeah and that's, I think, something we'll return to that I think it's very important that the warriors and Sif are there to witness when Thor really does finally have his kind of like breakthrough moments. Um, but that's a long way off. A little, a little while. But, and, and, you know, this whole thing is kind of interesting because it also speaks to the fact that nobody says it. It doesn't come up at all. But it makes me wonder if all of this line of thinking that they're having is also because now they probably know Loki's lined up for the throne now. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, they don't say it at all, but it's probably something they're like, he, I mean, he, Sif says he's always been jealous of Thor, but now he's going to be king. And, and like, this is exactly like for them as Thor's best friends that always hang out with him, possibly kind of like the worst scenario that they could be hoping for. I think that's another place where the sort of childishness of their existence crashes into the real politic of it. Because <laughs> yeah. he's always been jealous of Thor is such a childish way to describe it. But yeah. he's committed a coup. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't commit a coup over jealousy. I mean, I guess you do, but like, that's not the right. I mean, Shakespeare would argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> but it just seems it, it seems so small and petty, which that is part of what's powering that. But like, they, I think they really fail to grasp. I mean, 
ex- except when Fangtrel says, um, the, the word you're talking about is treason. They really sort of fail to grasp that scope. They fail to grasp the severity of Thor's weaknesses as a ruler, and they fail to grasp exactly what it is that's, that Loki has maneuvered himself into position as. It's interesting because a lot of that comes, you know, we've talked about this a little bit with Odin and the fact that, I mean, we, we're not really going to talk about this until we get to Ragnarok, but the whole past that Odin had was so much more kind of like that big bombastic, uh, you know, very big leader who's running around and killing everybody and kind of destroying everybody in his wake so that he can rule. I mean, he built his throne on blood with Hela by his side. And uh, and it's not until, as we've kind of parsed, the moment when he's standing over Laufey on the uh, the the uh, on Lofi's palace that he may perhaps have that moment of wisdom and recognition that maybe this isn't the way I should be going and that's the shift and so if they've spent you know thousands and thousands of years thinking one thing and it's only been in the last since 965 AD to now that Odin has started having this this kind of personality shift and like a wiser way of thinking then yeah i mean it is it's a harder place for people to change their mindset you know well and i do want to go back to that great line by fandrel where he says you know there's a difference between mischief and treason because he's acting as though there's this clear line but i think one of the things that we're seeing is that like certainly for loki like there's an awful lot of gray area and i think kind of what you know, again, we can spend hours and hours just talking about Loki's motivations. But my sense is the kind of place we've talked about is that Loki started out thinking he was just doing mischief. And then it became, well, maybe a little bit treasonous. And then it became an actual coup d'etat, you know, Um, or at least a, you know, a removal of the air. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's very intentional that, you know, Fandral wants there to be this clear line, mischief and treason, but no, it's actually a lot of really gray areas. And, we can wind up in treason a lot sooner than we think we're going to. Yeah, exactly. Um, So funny that we joked at the beginning about not thinking we would have enough material to talk about for a minute and going on. We've now spent almost 20 minutes talking about probably the first 15 seconds of this movie (laughs) of this minute. Uh, So let's try to um, my fault mostly, but we'll try to get beyond the a minute per second rate. We're going at at the moment Um, because now we cut to where that's that's the next phase of this. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So then we get um, we see where Loki stormed off to and that clearly he's He's distracted because what he does is he goes straight to the casket of winter and we get this great shot of him nervously looking at it and like slowly touching it and then his fingers starting to turn blue. Uh, what what are you thinking as you're watching that scene or that shot, I guess you should call it? It's heartbreaking. I especially like obviously with the context of what's happening there and what he's about to. I think he knows, but what he is confirming for himself, like it's heartbreaking and that's why this character works so well because he is heartbreaking even though he also you know commits atrocities eventually it's a really powerful moment to watch as he kind of approaches uh the casket of ancient winters and 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 it's almost like he's debating like he's he's as you said he pretty much knows this is his confirmation but he is still very hesitant about putting his hands on the handles and, and picking it up like he it takes him a good couple seconds to really think about it before he actually does it. And it's, it's a powerful moment to kind of see the way that he reacts and, you know, 
I mean, really kind of the acknowledgement of what he knew as we start kind of seeing his hands slowly turning blue as he kind of grips grips the casket. Yeah. And we've talked before about how one of the things that this movie is doing so well is taking the story of these literally larger than life figures, gods to us mere humans, and making their stories relatable. And and to me, I really feel that in this moment because, you know, I've never had to worry if I came from a different realm of existence or anything like that. But and I hope no one I know has. But I have friends who have found out they were adopted in less than great circumstances. And it was a pretty painful moment for them. And, you know, and that's a story we've seen on screen a lot. And I, I will say as someone who's been a... Uh, uh, an advocate for all sorts of uh, you know reproductive options and things like that, uh, that, you know, adoption is not always the terrible thing it's portrayed as on screen. I'd like to kind of lift that up. But I think we can like we can't relate to, you know, maybe I'm a frost giant, but I think it's easy to think about, like, maybe I'm not the child I thought I was. Maybe even beyond adoption, like probably most of us at some point had a moment of realizing, like, something we believed about our parents and our relationship with them isn't true or is very different. And it's just it's, you know. You're watching someone turn blue because they touched a space stone. It's ridiculous, but it's also so relatable. And I think also for Loki, it's it's an explanation of why he is so different. Like why he is, you know, we've talked a lot about how everybody in Asgard is one way and Loki is a different way. And he is deeply distrusted because of that. And um, this, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say he's an outcast because he is a prince. um, But there is that that outsider aspect to him. And I think we see it again with um, like, we've also talked a lot about how these characters are sort of willfully obtuse and ignorant about things that they don't want to see. And I don't think Loki could resist confirming what he suspects. I don't think he's capable of that. I think he's someone who has to know. Yeah, he, he definitely has to know. And I mean, you know, it, it, what I love about the way that this moment is constructed is that he is down here. He's drawn to this after, you know, all of these moments that he's had, whether it's, you know, the actual attack on Jotunheim when he turns, starts turning blue or when he's uh, earlier kind of staring at his hands, trying to kind of think about, you know, what is going on. All of these moments are kind of like pulling him here. And it's, it was like inevitable for him to end up here. And now as he's holding it and realizing there is something totally different with him, and it still doesn't give him all the answers, right? But it's what I find so interesting is the way that they create this moment that it's it's kind of like almost drawing Odin down here as well. And I find that really interesting because when we, as we find out here, uh, Odin cries out, stop. And, and the camera has this fantastic uh, dolly move to the side to reveal that, that Odin is... Uh, far behind uh, Loki on the stairs at the uh, coming coming down into the vault. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful shot and such a great moment. And again, I I can't imagine anyone else besides Anthony Hopkins de- delivering that line stop and that word. And, and to me, this is such a heartbreaking scene because I feel like there is so much love coming because you know this is where like you know he says stop, but then Loki turns around and is just entirely blue. I probably want to go through each each part of this, but I just want to kind of say all of it like. You know, he turns around, he's entirely blue, and he starts walking towards Odin, very accusatory, like, you know, am I cursed? What am I? And Odin is trying so hard to show love. You know, what what are you? You're my son. That should be all that matters. And we're clearly getting the sense that it's too late. You know, for Loki, something has changed, and he's not 
he doesn't just want to hear the reassurance anymore. He wants the truth. Right. He he's starting to really suspect now because he's like, what more than that? The casket. I mean, we don't we don't know what he's going to say, but the casket wasn't something like he knows that there's something else going on here that Odin just hasn't been telling him. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder if um, am I cursed? That's the better option. Yeah. If he's cursed, he could still be Odin and Frigga's biological child. He could still be as guardian. He is not, you know, because I think. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I, I suspect that the like the adoption is less the the blow here than knowing that he came from the enemy and that he was stolen. Mm, yeah. Like that's not good either. But if he's cursed, you can break a curse. That's the good option here. Um, and I think he asks it because he knows it's not true, but he's still hoping. I also, this is a small thing, but I love when we see him from behind the window in front of him makes it look like his ears are pointed. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I I caught that. Just sort of like further elfinizing him. I know he's a frost giant and not an elf, but there's some overlap there. (laughs) You you can see the fantasy sci-fi. I would go Vulcan, not elf. But yes, you've got an idea the authorizing thing there. And I just think that moment where he turns around and we just see that he's now entirely blue. It was just such a powerful shot. And then, and of course, it just starts to fade as he lets go of it, as he lets go of the casket. I end up having a lot of questions about this as well, because I guess what we're meant to believe is that there is a spell on him that's that's keeping him looking human. But is it also keeping him human size? Like when he's when he's holding the casket, is it just the fact that it is it is the coldest element right it's it's this element that blasts cold so is it the fact that he's holding something really cold that's just revealing kind of the blue frost giant cold nature as opposed to the height because like why wouldn't he also all of a sudden like grow several feet i never thought that it was a spell on him i guess i just assumed that you know touching as guardians and being in the care of them and being loved by them would have this effect on his external appearance it does you know it still begs the question of why he doesn't become gigantic when this is revealed but i guess i assumed it was passive magic rather than active magic I, yeah the best way to put it the theory that i that i heard i think this comes from the mcu podcast of the mcu cast i'm not sure i don't want to swear to that boat but i know i've heard this discussed on a podcast is that frigga had very early kind of Taught, you know, because one of the things he does with magic all the time is disguise himself. You know, he he does that. You know, he turns himself into Captain America in one of the few good moments of of Thor two, the Dark World. Uh, I will not be returning for minute by minute on that one. Um, but like, <laughs> but um, you know, we know that he can change how he looks by appearance all the time. And I, I think in later movies and, and in the Loki show, we get just a few hints to the idea that that he was basically like even before he realized it, he was able to start doing his own disguise magic just subconsciously all the time, you know, and that it's when he's within the presence of the frost giants and he touches them that that kind of overwhelms his own disguise magic. Um, But once again, this is an area where I feel like so much of our interpretation of it depends on how you understand that. And we just have no solid proof to go on. Well, according to the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe wiki, they do say this, adopting Loki and using sorcery to alter his appearance to make him appear to be an Asgardian. Odin raises Loki and his biological son Thor with his wife Frigga. So it is sorcery. They they actually do trans- transform uh, his appearance to look 
as guardian, but it's also a size thing. So again, I just don't understand how this, how these different uh, spells work when they're broken like this. Maybe he's just a shrimp. That's why the baby was just lying there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they 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 will call him out as being small for his for a frost giant. So maybe he. <laughs> but then again, like in what if? And again, it, it is what if. But when we see Loki, the frost giant, like he is a giant. Yeah. Right. Although I think um, in one of the versions of the script, I think of this or maybe in something else, we do get the revelation that he was left out. He was like, left to die and exposed as a as a baby on Jotunheim. I think that hasn't made it into the canon. But certainly if that's the idea, then maybe he was a runt. You know, maybe he was the, the little runt of the litter that was just left out. Like, you'll, you'll never be a, a proud Jotunheim. So. Well, it's definitely not uh, official because officially, like, like, well, we'll hear later, but Odin will say he went into the temple and that's where he found him. So, oh, yeah, so it's right. not like it's not like he was some back alley baby that was left in a dumpster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's just so much happening in the scene, but uh, I think we've gone into a lot of it. Is there any other kind of points we want to talk about from the scene or, or other parts in the minute? I have a few other points I wanted to make. One in the script. What was interesting is that when when Loki comes down here and he actually picks up the casket it actually causes the destroyer to start stirring in its chamber right behind that grate, and the grate starts doing its disappearing act, and the destroyer comes out ready to burn Loki up. And he's, like, completely dismissive of it, just focused on the uh, the casket. And actually, Odin's calling of stop is to direct the destroyer to stop its actions and to go back to sleep, not necessarily to, to Loki to um, pick up the... A casket. Mm, yeah, I, I missed that entirely. I thought he was just saying. I, I saw the destroyer, but I thought he was saying it specifically to uh, to Loki. You know, stop touching it. He could have been, but it, but in the script, like when he says that, uh, the destroyer goes back to uh, to sleep, basically. So yeah, I don't know, uh, one way or the other. It's but it was kind of a peculiar little moment. I wonder which um, what they actually filmed, like what yeah <laughs> who Anthony Hopkins thought he was saying stop to because there is that <laughs> right. wonderful note of desperation in his voice, which works whether he's like desperately trying to keep his secrets and keep his son's love or desperately trying to stop a robot from killing his son, <laughs> but right. one is a lot more poignant. It would be interesting if like he had filmed it speaking to the destroyer, but they were able to use that sort of edge to his voice in such a powerful way, just speaking directly to Loki. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially because you you wonder, and again, here I'm headcanoning pretty hard, but like, <clears throat> how does the destroyer know when the wrong person is touching it? You know, and certainly a version of this story that often would happen is that you know the destroyer is programmed to know the difference between an Asgardian mm-hmm. and a and a Jotun, and that it knows if a Jotun is touching this thing, that's bad. And I I I'm running with this because I kind of love the idea that the destroyer can see through the magic. You know, it knows mm. that Loki is, and that's yeah. why it's kind of starting to, to step out here. That would have actually been kind of interesting as as perhaps a way to reveal that, yeah. Um, uh, so an- another thing that I noticed is that Odin is in just a fantastic Asgardian-like garment that I think is the first time we've seen him in something other than armor. So it's really nice to see him in just like some sort of a robe. And it looks, again, just to uh, to what you were saying earlier, Jessica, like the, the design of it, everything about it has such a nice Asgardian just kind of feel. I love the vibe of what he's wearing uh, throughout, uh, throughout these scenes. I'm trying to remember, because I, I, I'm not good at these details, 
we watched earlier a deleted scene that isn't in the movie, but uh, where Frigga and Odin are talking about his decision to banish Thor, that maybe he shouldn't have do it. Do it. Was he wearing armor in that? Or he was, was he wearing still more in his the, armor. The, the casual look. No, okay, yeah, interesting. yeah, he still had his armor on. Um, that was where I could see, you know, how many of those, the rings that he had on the front of his armor. And then uh, also, we've talked about this with the with the frost giants. The fact that they have what seems to be like tattoos, like it talks about how they have they'll tattoo themselves or whatever as part of their ranks and stuff. But as I don't know, I I, I think it's interesting to see, and we'll have to just I guess compare later when we uh, get to see kind of the Loki baby in later minutes. But like how these tattoos or these markings on his skin kind of translate. And if there if there's some consistency there, because, again, I just I find it so strange that they they show up on the baby if they are actual tattoos. Yeah, I don't know if they're birthmarkings or, if you know, the babies are tattooed like, you know, at a very, very young age. It's, it's no way to tell. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to hard to say. What you think would like distort the tattoos as the child grows like you're not going to get the same yeah. shape. Although, I mean, if you plan for that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But it's Jotun. Yeah. It's it's Jotun biology. So who really knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's certainly true. Just that, just that Loki's blue, Daba D, and that's, yeah. uh, that's kind of where we end with this. <laughs> There's one last thing I want to say, and again, I don't want to. Maybe this is just because I was confused, but I, I I've talked to a lot of other people who had this confusion. I think the casket to me is proof that although they may have known what was happening with the MCU, that they wanted the MCU to keep building, they hadn't yet committed to the Infinity Stones plotline. And I say that because I left this movie, well, when I, I left Captain America utterly convinced that the, you know, sacred Norse uh, Infinity Stone, which glows blue, and the Casket of Winters that glows blue are the same thing. And I just kind of, like... I, once I know it's the casket, like if you really look to the details, you can tell there's you understand there's a difference. But I feel like it's such an easy confusion to make that that kind of tells me they weren't necessarily already thinking that far ahead the way they are in a lot of later movies. I also thought that the Tesseract and the Casket of Winters were connected when I saw these movies, which they came out like a few months apart from each other. Like they were really it was it was all very back to back. And even even through Avengers, like the whole idea of the collecting the infinity stones came in much later and you have to sort of work around some of these earlier movies and also i think the idea of like everybody's gonna see all of these movies was not a thing yet so if you have basically identical glowy blue energy in two movies it's okay it's not like everybody's Mm. gonna see both of them but like (laughs) i saw five superhero movies that year and that was just the beginning of the madness space action rom-com and world war ii military buddy movie are not really the same genre you know so (laughs) yeah I i think it's entirely plausible to expect those movies to have completely different audiences and i know when avengers came out many people were like oh, well, I saw Captain America, but I didn't see Thor or vice versa. And it does such a good job of carrying you through if you haven't seen those. But Yeah, you're in that boat, Matthew. 
That was me. I loved the Iron Man movies. I thought Hulk was pretty good. I had no interest in Thor and Captain America because I thought they looked dumb. And then I watched Avengers and I was like, oh, these characters are actually pretty cool. I'm going to go back and watch them. So yeah, even more so. So I'd seen the Tesseract first and then I see this glowing blue thing on Asgard. It's like, well, okay, there we go. You weren't seeing superhero movies with me in 2011 because one of the other movies that I saw was Green Lantern. And comparatively, these (laughs) are masterpieces. (laughs) I I will say I I watched Green Lantern under I think the only circumstances that would make any sense whatsoever in that I, I was talking to uh, I think I was on a date and and they were over and we were going to watch a movie and we we're trying to figure out what to watch and we talked about like a love of um, Seth Rogen so we were like okay so yeah we're going to watch a Seth Rogen movie let's watch it, it was one of those green superhero movies right uh, Green Lantern sure and so oh, we watched no. Green Lantern and I spent the first hour trying to figure out when Seth Rogen and the car <laughs> were going to show up um, oh my so. that would have been yeah probably would have made it better <laughs> we're now deep deep into tangent land uh, so I think we should probably wrap up here Jessica it's been so great having you on as a guest for this last week for people who want to find more just kind of give them one last time to, uh, to hear about it where can they find you um, sure. I do a lot of writing for Book Riot, um, mostly about comics, occasionally about other bookish stuff. Um, and I talk a lot about superheroes over there. You can find me on Twitter at Jess underscore Plummer. Um, I have a Superman movie podcast called Flights and Tights. And I recently had a short story published in Swordstone Table an anthology of diverse Arthurian legend retellings from vintage books. Definitely check all those things out. Um, Jess is also a regular guest on my podcast, Superhero Ethics. I can do a shameless plug by sneaking it in there while uh, plugging her. The comics history episodes especially. Um, But also I'd say, uh, I'm not positive we're going to make this happen, but we're going to try to have, when this episode goes live, we will have in the show notes uh, an affiliate link where if you click on it, you can go directly to uh, bookstore.org, probably, possibly Amazon, but hopefully bookstore.org, where you can buy that book that has Jess's short story as well as a lot of other great short stories. You'll get a little bit of savings on it, and you also throw a little bit of money towards the podcasts just to help with all the expenses of, uh, you know, bringing this great content to you every week. So, Jess, thank you so much. Uh, Really look forward to having you on again. Andy, as always, thank you so much. And to all of our fans, you're what makes this possible. Thank you, and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Yeah.